Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontifrac. Today in the house, oh, gosh, the modern economist? What? Todd Hurst, the modern economist. Let's do a big, quick bio, and then we're going to get into some serious conversations about not just the economy, but forecasting and how that relates to our world as human beings and as leaders and all the above. Okay, for more than 25 years, Todd worked as an economist for such renowned institutions as ATB Financial, the Canadian Pacific Railway, the Canada West Foundation, and the Bank of Canada. Having had a front row seat to the key issues and trends impacting and transforming our world, Hearst delivers dynamic, clear-eyed talks and thoughts on the economy, adaptability, and creativity. Hearst served as Vice President and Chief Economist for ATB Financial for over 15 years. He also previously previously sorry, taught economics at the University of Calgary and for the executive education program at the University of Alberta. In recognition of his work, Todd has received the Queen Elizabeth II Platinum 2022 and the Diamond 2020 or 2012, sorry, Jubilee Medals, the University of Alberta's Alumni Honor Award and the honorary degree from Mount Royal University. He's the author of four books, his latest, Spiders in the COVID Space, Adapting During and After the Pandemic, capturing the inspiring and compelling stories of businesses and not-for-profits that reinvented themselves during the pandemic. He is currently the director of the Energy Transition Center at Innovate Calgary. Todd and I go way back, but we're here today to talk a little bit about economic forecast, Todd, because I'm so compelled by this particular thread and where we go today, we'll see. Here, I want to start with a quote from Ezra Solomon. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. So Ezra once wrote... The only function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable, (laughs) (laughs) which is a perfectly good way to start our chat today, Todd. So here I'm thinking um, the IMF, our own Bank of Canada, Todd's hailing from Calgary today, the Bank of England, uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, everybody effectively has aired you know, in their kind of inflation forecasting predictions, particularly really since the onset of the pandemic. So, Todd, A, what the hell is going on here? Why are such educated, learned people making themselves out to be somewhat of fools? I mean, you're an economist, so isn't accuracy yeah. thing about forecasting? Like, what the heck's going on here? Well, first of all, Dan, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a real pleasure to be here. And yeah, you've opened this segment with a lot uh, there. When Once we start to think about economic forecasting, and this is something that, by the way, I've spent most of the last three decades doing uh, successfully and maybe unsuccessfully. And more recently in my career, I've sort of been challenging economists, asking them, why are we even doing this? Uh We are getting it so wrong. And it's not because we are less good at doing the math. It's not even that the models are faulty. The problem is our world now is so full of these, to use Taleb's word, these black swan events that come out of nowhere and are going to make fools of anyone who tries to forecast. So I've been sort of thinking, you know, why are we spending so much time trying to predict 
why aren't we spending more time trying to prepare because mm. the number of outcomes is is growing at an alarming rate and we're and we're going to get it wrong and i think we need to go into the, some of this with some humility it kind of reminds me that often we in terms of the organization are so happy to have a and it's a terrible term but a postmortem you know, the project goes through yeah. or the prediction goes through and then we do a postmortem on what it is that we said we were going to do. In fact, is what we did. And oftentimes it's not what we did. What you, sort of the point I'm thinking I'm trying to tie here together is in your opening comment there. What if we started doing pre-mortems? Like sort of that notion of rather than predicting, I love how you said we need to prepare more. If we're doing pre-mortems. Yeah. We're therefore preparing for something rather than trying to predict it in a postmortem aftermath. So tell me a bit right. about why you think prepare is better than predict. Well, it's a great question. And I don't remember whatever happened to scenario planning. That was kind of a fad maybe back around 1995, the business schools and the business books, you know, the scenario planning exercises that all the corporate boards went off and did. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it seemed to make sense. And maybe we need to rethink uh, doing more scenario planning rather than trying to forecast. One of my favorite quotes about forecasting, by the way, the secret to good forecasting is revise frequently. <laughs> and that way, you know, you're never really wrong if you revise your forecast. You could do it every day. And then, you know, the day that COVID hits, you can say, well, that was our old forecast. We have a new one and everything's going into the sewer. Um, so, I, you know, again, I think it, um, it, it sort of lays bare the almost the folly of, of trying to forecast in a world that uh, is changing on us so rapidly and, and so unpredictably. Well, even ties nicely to an old uh, John Maynard Keynes quote, which was um, something to the effect of when, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and economists, we've, we've painted ourselves into these corners sometimes and I get it. I, you know, again, I've done this or I've worked on teams or have led teams that have tried um, to do quarterly forecasts. Most recently here, uh, when I was the chief economist at ATB Financial, our jurisdiction was the province of Alberta. So we would, you know, spend a lot of effort trying to make quarterly forecasts, revising them quarterly. We had all the econometric tools and these big sophisticated models. And I had much smarter people than me on my team, really good math people. You know, but, you know, oil prices tank or somebody invades some other country and oil prices spike and everything about the forecast, you know, we crumple in a ball and, and, and throw in the, in the bin. And again, I'm, I'm wondering, would economists serve clients and our employers better if rather than trying to pinpoint saying, you know, growth is going to be 3.1%, even this idea of predicting to a tenth of a percentage point. I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> We don't know what's going to happen tonight, like, but we've worked ourselves into this, you know, idea that we can predict to a tenth of a percent what GDP growth is going to be when there are so many variables that are going to knock it off kilter. So why don't we spend more time preparing, starting to think about what are some possible outcomes? So in that way, you know, we're still forward looking, but we're not trying to lock ourselves into saying this is what is going to happen. Would you say, Todd, that then trust has a lot to do with the responsibility of economists and, and others in the corporate world? I'll come back to that in a second. So 
trust is such an important part, in my opinion, right, of what it means when someone says, I'm going to go do this. And if you don't follow through on that, well, you've kind of broken the trust. So in a forecasting world with the economy and or I go back to the organization for a second, you know, the finance departments whom are quarterly trying to revise what they're uh, forecasting or their revenue or their EBITDA for the analysts on Wall Street and Bay Street and so forth, Fleet Street. Tell me a bit about how trust should play a part or does it play a part in this whole notion of forecasting, whether it's a corporation's fiscal and financials or it's the economy in and of itself. Yeah, that's exactly, I think, part of the problem that we are seeing is this breach of trust or, or people, you know, their trust has been shattered in the experts, you know, and, and here in Alberta, we had some politicians a while back saying, we're not going to listen to the experts anymore, <laughs> which really kind of broke my heart. But, you know, I think that message connects with people, even though I still think we should listen to experts. But there is, there's been a, a breakdown in trust. And, you know, I'm going to pick on a little bit, pick on my former employer, the Bank of Canada. Um, You know, back around February of 2021, we were kind of wallowing in the the depths of COVID and everything seemed very grim. Uh, Deflation still seemed like a bigger problem. And at the time, the governor, Tiff Macklem, who used to be my boss, great guy, I've got 100% respect for him. But at the time, he made comments to the effect that interest rates are going to stay low for an extended period of time, full stop. And nobody challenged it because it seemed obvious that interest rates are going to stay low because we are teetering on kind of, you know, a a massive, what we thought might have been a five-year recession or depression. But then, of course, history took an exact different turn. Inflation took off a couple months later. And within about a year after making that comment, of course, the Bank of Canada, central banks everywhere really aggressively started raising interest rates, completely contradicting what what, uh, Governor Macklin said, you know, about six months or a year earlier. So was it his fault? I don't know. I want to be more generous uh, because in that situation, it seemed like a perfectly sensible thing to say. It's just not the way history played out. Well, in that vein, though, I mean, the IMF and the Bank of England and the Bank of Canada and so forth, right? These governors are getting together with their smart people doing all the math. And assumingly, they're all working together on this forecasting that, oh, of course, interest rates aren't going to dip below 2%. Uh, We're going to stay around this time. They're never going to go higher for a long, long time. And here we are just a short, what, two-ish years later, and we have many families about to renew their mortgages freaking out and you kind of now say well that where's the trust in the bank of canada in this particular case and then what is the trust that's going to be with their own bankers whether it's atb royal bank bmo whomever the fact that a lot of people are going to struggle financially and now like we're talking about human consequences here yeah and you know i sympathize with people who you know, they even did the work. They did the research. They listened to what the governor of the Bank of Canada was saying. They might have even read some of the speeches and some of the, you know, the monetary policy reports from the Bank of Canada and elsewhere, you know, doing the work and making an informed, what they thought was an informed decision. 
staying on a variable rate mortgage uh, because that did seem to be the thing that made sense. So it's not like they were going in blindly. They even did the work. It's just that it's not the way it turned out. Maybe the lesson is the Bank of Canada, like maybe the IMF, like maybe every forecaster, we need maybe a bit more humility saying it's very likely that interest rates are going to stay low, but history has taught us there can be curveballs that come out of nowhere. Um, we don't know. We can't guarantee. But it felt a bit like a guarantee back mm. in early 2021 that interest rates were going to stay low. But now people feel like, why are we listening to experts? Why are we listening to, you know, we hear one Canadian political leader saying he's going to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, which is a terrible idea, by Todd, the way. No but I understand why. It's a terrible idea, but I understand why that kind of connects with people. You know, average Canadians who think, yeah, fire him. He told us, you know, we don't trust him anymore. So while I, while I, I sympathize with the, the Bank of Canada, let's not fire anybody, especially yeah. the governor of the Bank of Canada. But I also sympathize with those Canadians who feel like, I don't know if I can trust these economists and these central bankers anymore. They mm -hmm. got it wrong. Well, you've uh, been on public record with your external writing at places like the Global Mail that you've said that the economy is not behaving as it, as it has in the past. And so yeah. let's let's dig into that just for a second here. So my query or kind of line of questioning here is, does that mean, Todd, that economists are sort of using steam engines to cross the Atlantic or perhaps sticks and stones to fight a war? And what I mean by that, of course, cheekily, is are old economic tools being used or forcing economists to sort of think in a in technicolor when they're in black and white? And what is it that we need to be doing differently then to, to actually assuage the situation and maybe forecast a little more properly for 2023 and beyond? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot in what you just said, but I think um, that is part of the challenge that economists face. And it's part of the reason why I've rebranded myself as, you know, this cheeky little uh, tagline or, or my title, the modern economy, because yeah. I think in the 21st century, and we're almost a quarter of the way through the century, by the way. But in the 21st century, the economy is displaying or demonstrating some um, unpredictable things that didn't exist in the 20th century. But almost all of our economic dogma and our knowledge and the models of constructing and predicting the economy, they all come from the 20th century. And again, they're doing less. It's, it's, it's not that they were wrong. In the 80s and 70s, it's just they're incomplete to describe an economy in the 21st century that take, for example, you know, the big tech companies like Google, um, a macroeconomic or a microeconomic textbook in 1970 could not have predicted that one of the largest companies in the world is going to amass billions by giving away a free product where now you and I are the product. I mean, most of us can kind of understand how they're doing this now, but those economic models didn't exist then. So then when you try to use those models and that economic thought that comes out of the late 20th century and apply it today, uh, we're finding that it's not working in the same way, even monetary policy. So, you know, to get back to uh, central banks, um, raising interest rates to where the point they are now should have created a recession 
a long time ago already, and we should be seeing 8, 9, 10% unemployment. Yet in the United States and in Canada, but more so in the US, the labor market has remained in remarkably good shape, still near record low unemployment. Um, using those economic models from the 20th century, if you had told me that central banks around the world are going to go from point or basically 0% interest to five and a half in the span of about a year and six months, um, what's going to happen to the labor market? Well, we would say this is going to create all kinds of unemployment and are probably a recession. Now, inflation did come down, hmm. but it's even debatable in economic circles exactly what brought inflation down. Was it? The central banks, you can make an argument that that contributed, or was it just that commodity prices came down? Supply chains post-COVID started to work again, and naturally, you know, these inflation rates came down. So we, we I think we just need different ways of thinking about the economy, not relying quite so heavily on those economic models and theories and, and, and dogmas from, from the 20th century. So as the modern economist, Todd, and not if, but when you become governor of the Bank of Canada in this fine country. A job both, I would not want, by the way. We both live it. That's let's, a lot of pressure. Let's, let's hypothesize just for a second. And you're, okay. off the, you're off the speaker circuit. You're not writing books. You're the governor of the Bank of Canada. So what is it that you do? to inform the team that there is a new modern way to be economists to therefore forecast for let's say 2025 and beyond let's say we're in the uh the next three quarters of the century how do what would you be doing i think what i would do is be less um be less pinpoint. And I know economists, we try to do a medium case scenario and a high and a low case scenario. Like we try to think about, and most of your listeners will kind of understand a bell curve of, you know, possible events. What's the likeliest to happen? That's our medium case scenario. But I think we need to kind of drop this idea that we're, we're going to get this right. Put forward a bunch of forecasts. So the bell curve almost becomes a straight line across the top. And saying we need to be humble about this we aren't going to get even a, even when we say a medium case scenario people take that as well that's your forecast and i can say a hundred times well that's that's only what we think is the likeliest but there's also these other things that could happen and but they still say well what's what's the bottom line number you know this is what we always hear i think it would maybe serve forecasters our friends at the central banks, IMF, everywhere, um, to maybe present. I understand why they, there is a need to forecast, but maybe even come up with a different name for it rather than calling it a forecast, put together a, a foresight of possible events. Hmm. Because it is important that all of us try to prepare um, for any possible outcome. But let's let's not be quite as confident anymore in our ability to get this medium case scenario right, because we're not going to. So a bit of honesty and truth, and as you alluded to earlier, uh, humility and vulnerability to say, look, here's the range as opposed to the the, the 0 0.0 decimal level of accuracy. Which yeah. Is like maybe that might be the first start is like quit trying to say, because people will hear this on the news, right? Oh, the Bank of Canada, you know, today or ATB Financial or whatever it is going to be, RBC, 
the conference board, they predict, you know, Canada's GDP is going to grow by 3.5% or whatever number. And that's the end of the news report. <laughs> so then when it's not 3.5%, because it's not going to be, it would almost be a miracle <laughs> if it's 3.5%, especially, you know, in the 21st century with all these things going on. When it's not, then people say, well, you know, these guys are terrible at forecasting. Why are we listening to them? Mm -hmm. So even if we just drop this one per, one decimal place prediction and, and, and get rid of these numbers and say, here's a range of scenarios we need to watch out for. Um, geopolitics, we need to be aware. What happens if there is a cyber attack on the global economy or on you know the United States from Iran? What happens if China invades Taiwan? Like all of these things kind of lurk out there. And the minute, and I'm not about to predict them, but the minute any one of those things happens, well, everyone's forecast, their pinpoint forecast is thrown in the bin and we start again. Uh, just like we did during COVID, just like we did even 9-11. I mean, that's going back a ways. Um, the financial crisis of, of 2008, all of these big events. And there's going to be more uh, of these big events that <clears throat> will challenge all of the assumptions. So... Maybe that could be the first step is just quit trying to put a one decimal place digit together and say, that's, that's the forecast. Well, I, uh, I went to school with prime minister Trudeau and he was in a bunch of my classes. So we have a bit of a friendship. So I'm going to, I'm going to lobby him for governor Hirsch soon, my friend. So heads up on that. Tell no, me I don't want that job, please. <laughs> I'm still going to lobby. Uh, tell me a bit about, you just alluded to geopolitical sort of events. And so what I want to actually hone in a little bit is how do geopolitical events of today, so American polarity politically, for example, um, the number of insurance claims that are being made, whether they are fires or floods or aliens from space, uh, how, how, the the Ukraine war with the invasion by the our, our Russian um confederation if you will like it seems anyway what how does geopolitical events that have recently occurred even with covid perhaps like tell us a bit about in layman's terms how this affects the economy and almost potentially i guess hampers economists in that forecasting like give them almost a break to what yeah, what occurs. yeah. well it's a great question and i don't know if we often think about geopolitics enough in relation to the economy because, yeah, geopolitics, what this leader is saying or what, you know, tanks rolling into this country, all these un yeah. really un unfortunate events. But they do trickle down and have an economic impact. Even Russia's invasion of Ukraine, almost immediately we saw global grain and oilseed prices skyrocket because those exports from Ukraine and sort of by extension from Russia were uh, unable to, to get out of the ports and, and get onto the market. So we felt that in a very awkward way here in, in Canada, we compete a lot with Ukraine for a lot of similar kinds of agricultural products, things like weed, canola, even potash. Mm. So we saw, you know, a, a, a lift in agricultural prices very unfortunately or awkwardly because of atrocities happening in Ukraine. So even though we're not involved in the war in Ukraine, it's, you know, half the planet away from us, but we feel it here at home with commodity prices. Another way is disruption of trade flows. Now, we don't actually trade much with Russia. So Canada, 
you know, the U.S., we haven't really felt the economic pain of trade sanctions against Russia. But ask Germany how that went for them <laughs> uh, and all of the embargoes and then Russia, of course, turning off the tap of mm -hmm. hydrocarbons, particularly natural gas flowing to Germany. It really put Germany in a, and other parts of Western Europe in a really bad spot going into the winter of 2022-23. But the bigger thing I think we need to be uh, sort of conscious of is what happens if uh, geopolitical tensions deteriorate, or I guess tensions escalate between the United States and China, yeah. and by extension, Canada and China, and maybe all of Western Europe. What might that mean if we start to see more actions by China um, sort of saying, we're not too happy with you guys. Even, you know, a couple of weeks ago, mid-August, when the Chinese government took Canada off of a list of approved destinations for Chinese tour groups. Huh. That is a real slapdown. And, you know, just when Canada's tourism industry, a lot of it in BC, is really struggling to get back on its feet after COVID, and now they're contending with forest fires, now they're contending with the second largest international market after the US saying, Canada, you're off the list. Strictly a geopolitical maneuver. China saying, we haven't been very happy, Canada, with the way you've been behaving. Um, so I think we can anticipate more of this and that will have uh, an economic impact. I live, uh, for those that know me, I live in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, and there's a wonderful gardens that's a tourist attraction here called the Butchart Gardens. I spoke with some leaders at Butchart Gardens, and that exact point recently, Todd, came up about how uh, they, it used to have sort of upwards of 40% of their summer customers uh, were yeah. Chinese tourists, and it's just crickets. The buses just aren't loaded up because they do day trips from Vancouver just to go to the Butchart Gardens, as an example. And so that was just one. Yeah. So I hear you. How, how about, you know, it's kind of geopolitical because we've got to do something about it, but uh, sort of the, the climate crisis and how you think, I guess I'm asking you to forecast now, supposedly, how that is going to play a part in our economic predictions when we've got so many um, literally fires and figuratively fires that we've trying to douse, we're trying to douse with our climate action relief. Yeah, I think there's two ways that more severe weather events are going to impact the economy. One is a very direct one for those very unfortunate businesses and people who live in places that are being devastated by fire or mm. floods or hurricanes. I mean, we think about Hurricane Fiona on the east coast of the U.S. and Canada it was of last winter already. Um, when a hurricane bears down on you and the one bearing down on Florida as we speak, um, businesses can't operate <laughs> when there is a hurricane or the, the hurricane that hit Southern California recently. But that is a very direct impact and it's regionalized and on those businesses, unfortunately, unfortunate enough to be right in the path of the fire or the flood or the hurricane. But the indirect effects are going to impact everybody. Um, governments, uh, there's no question, governments, they come to the aid of those who have been hit by forest fires and floods and everything else. And I don't think anybody begrudges that. I don't think anyone would say, my tax dollars shouldn't be going to fighting forest fires in Kelowna. Nope. No one says that. Nonetheless, tax dollars do <laughs> have to go to fighting forest fires, and they should. 
but that means those tax dollars are now unavailable for something else or we have to increase taxes to replace it it's a cost mm-hmm. that understandably we 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 do it we do it without complaining as canadians um but it is a cost and also insurance costs uh, even if you don't live anywhere close to a forest uh your property insurance might likely be going up simply because there has been a skyrocketing and i don't have the figures with me but uh in the us particularly but also canada a skyrocketing in insurance premiums as insurance companies have faced skyrocketing payouts because of these natural disasters um they need to make money or at least you know show value to their shareholders that means premiums are going to go up so even if you live in a downtown calgary condo like i do which i mean if this thing if downtown calgary's on fire i mean the whole world's in trouble but you know even even our insurance premiums are going to go up simply because we're nowhere close to a forest but we are part of a national insurance sort of economy so those prices are going to go up all canadian consumers are going to pay for these more intense weather events okay last segment i want to get into and it's sort of taking your modern economist hat and and learned head and and shifting that inside the organization just for a second and thinking about what leadership tactics or techniques we might infer from being a more modern forecaster if you will so as an example like big examples um we seem to make in organizations bets from our project management of you know implementations of certain products or services or you know change methods and we swing and we miss hard and where i'm going with this are examples like say wembley stadium in london you know it was um you know scheduled to open in 03 it opened in 2007 and it was about 450 million dollars over budget the Sydney Opera House, another famous example, right? It was supposed to open in 1963. It opened 10 years later at about $120 million over budget. So those are classic examples, but these things are happening all the time, although on a, a smaller scale, of course, in our organizations. And a lot of it, if I'm looking at the analogy between the modern economists doing forecasting better with a range and thinking about the leadership techniques of what we need to be doing inside the organization, Tell me a bit about the thrills and perils of forecasting inside the org and the things maybe you see that leaders could do a bit differently. Oh, yeah, that's that's a whole other <laughs> topic. And, you know, I have to full full admission, I, I've never really worked on that side uh, in any organization. But, um, yeah, you look at, uh, you know, companies that are looking on expanding or, or a building project or like you referenced, you know, governments building a, a public infrastructure like the Sydney Opera House. You look at the example of just recently in Australia, the I think it was the state of Victoria or New South Wales pulling out funding for uh, the Commonwealth Games, oh, yeah. which they had been awarded. Um, but these cost overruns are crazy. And, and the state government is saying, we're not going to do it. So the games are off. <laughs> uh, and I don't I'm not close enough to that situation to kind of land on either side. But I think we can expect more of this to your question. What should leaders be doing? I don't know if it maybe is um, more realism about what things are going to cost. I kind of again, I've never worked on this side of it, but I kind of get the feeling that these project managers are asked to come up with 
what is the very best case scenario, the the lowest amount of money that is realistic and the and the best timeline? Because we can sell that to our board, or we can sell that to taxpayers, or you know people in Calgary voting in a referendum on the Olympics. What's the best case scenario? Give us that, because that'll be easy to sell. Maybe we need to step away from that logic, as appealing as it might be. Um, again, knowing that you know we are setting ourselves up for an absolute disaster if we sell people that number. And it's not gonna be that number. It's gonna be something way above it. Um, most of the, the listeners might be aware in the city I live, we voted in, I guess it was 2018, 2019. Um, we were, you know, there was a bid for Calgary to host the 2026 Olympic games. And, you know, I, I wrote about this. I was on the yes side, I was all for it, but the city voted no. And looking back on it, you know, I think if there was a, a third option for voters, you know, yes, no, or not yet. Because mm. my, you know, in talking to other Calgarians who voted no, it's not that they didn't want to welcome the world and celebrate winter sports because Calgary is a real sports city. And it's, a, totally. you know, we like to think of ourselves as a global city. But a lot of the people who voted no saying, I do not trust these three levels of government. They don't have their numbers right. Um, they they threw them together hastily, uh, and you really did get the feeling that they were thrown together hastily. You know, leading up to that that referendum vote, people didn't trust these numbers, uh, and I think we were asked to bid on something that probably was unrealistic in terms of cost and timelines. And I think that's why voters said, "Sorry, we'd love a big party, we love the Olympics, but we don't we don't trust you guys right now." It's a really good poignant example of how, again, and I know you're not in this space, but it was good extrapolation, if you will, on some of the um, the mechanisms from a leadership perspective that we all of us really should be paying attention to because we all are forecasters. We're all really, maybe not economists, but modern, modern economists in our organizations, in our lives, maybe not society writ large as you do and have done uh, for banks and for society. But, but those are key elements, like making sure that you're not at that, again, that decimal level, right, of pinpoint accuracy. And you've got to be able to kind of um, have the wherewithal to know that there's perhaps a range rather than an absolute. And that's what I'm gathering from a lot of your feedback today. Yeah. But my guess is if those uh, those teams that were putting together the bids or putting together the project budgets, if they said, well, you know, there's a, there's a range, um, Let's give them a realistic mid-range. It might come in under that. It might be a little over, but um, I don't think they'd be able to sell it a lot of times because that mid-range is going to be a much higher number than a best-case scenario. And yeah, they would probably tell me, I mean, again, I've not worked on these things. They probably would say, no, we built in contingencies for higher prices on this or that or different things, but um, it's still going to be wrong. And especially... Uh, might not be so bad going forward, but you know the last two or three years when we saw this absolute explosion in the price of construction materials and steel and cement, and you know to use another local example for from Calgary, we're we're trying to build a new hockey arena, but right. even these things like almost daily, and you know there's it's still kind of in limbo, but uh, the the sticking point is always who's going to pay for these cost overruns, and there have been the things not even built, they're not even haven't even broken ground on it yet but already the costs have kind of escalated because uh, that's just 
reality. That's just the world. But, you know, who's going to pay? Who's going to pay? Well, this is a free show, so no one pays for this one, Todd. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Uh, last two questions. What's your final words of wisdom, and where can we find out more from Todd Hirsch? Oh, final words of wisdom. Well, I've been toying right now, you know, as we talk about the modern economy, and a lot of people ask me, to, you know, what's going to happen next? I describe us as, you know, the global economy, Canada. We are in this what I describe as this liminal space, this mm. passageway between one economy of the late 20th century that seemed to operate in a certain way. And now everything is shifting and everything feels unsettled. Everything feels a bit awkward and precarious. That's the liminal space until we move into a new state of the economy at some point in this century. And we don't know what that looks like. If that is our AI overlords, if it's cryptocurrencies, we don't know, but we know we are shifting. We're moving through this liminal space. During a liminal period of time, uh, things, like I said, can feel unsettled. They can feel anxious. People can feel fearful. Um, you can see unpredictable political uprisings and you know people getting elected on, on platforms of anger and because people are feeling so um, uneasy. I would just say my, my only wisdom is, can we all express more kindness and empathy, uh, even in our feeling unsettled? I'm not saying ignore what's going on, uh, because there's a lot going on. Um, but can we all experience or, or demonstrate more kindness and empathy to those people who perhaps have different viewpoints, maybe to those who perhaps haven't quite caught up with where the world is moving on a lot of these economic and political and social issues. They're not quite there yet, but can we bring them along in kindness and with empathy? Because one thing, and it doesn't take an economist to know this, but if we all turn against each other and eat each other alive, that's not gonna be a good result for anybody. Well, I don't even think the dinosaurs forecasted the meteorite that hit this uh, planet. So I'm with you. Let's let's not eat each other. And let's put the word human back in humanity, Todd. Where can we find out more about you? Where's the best locations? Well, the best location is my own website, which is just toddhirsch.com. And that's Hirsch with a H-I-R-S-C-H dot com. Uh, or I am listed with Speaker Spotlight if they're looking at... Um, uh, booking me as a speaker, but I'd invite them first of all to check out my website. There's a speaker reel there. Um, they can check out my books and some of my other uh, activities that I'm involved in. Amazing. Well, I really appreciate your time. I'm sure listeners and those viewing uh, as well do. The Modern Economist, that's such a great, not just tagline, but really um, vernacular that perhaps all economists and financial pros might want to adopt going forward. Thanks again for your time, mate. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. All right, folks, that's Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract. Today in the house, the modern economist, Todd Hirsch. What a guy from Calgary. Love him. And uh, tune into another episode uh, down the stream.